0: Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein.
1: We want to thank all of our Patreon members with a benefit available for all. I introduce Rachel's weekly check-ins. Once a week, you'll find a short audio clip covering anything from what's going on in the world to sharing ideas that I'd like to expand on that I think would be of interest and of help to you. We brought something else fun for our patron tiers. You'll see some stylish tote bags and cool stickers. Share a picture of our merch on your social media and
0: don't forget to tag us. Hi everyone. Today on the show, we have someone who I actually just met recently. And it was a happenstance kind of meeting. And I love when that happens. Uh, And I found myself talking to this person who was an expert on cults because of her own experiences. Robbie Balanek is someone who I just, again, met recently, but wish I had met many years ago. She has intel about a group that I remember hearing about when I was first doing this work. For a a lot of us who have done this work for decades now, the name John Roger or the names John Roger and MSIA and Insight Seminars take us all back a couple of decades to when we first started hearing about this person who thought that he had been mm, descended upon or visited by a spirit And then he felt that it was his obligation or duty or right to share this kind of anointed information, this insightful information that could benefit everyone in the world with as many people as he could. And the people who got to know him personally were very charmed by him until they weren't, until they could see that something was going on that was truly wrong. And so Robbie is going to take us through her experiences where she has information from having lived it, from having known him, from having to have kind of a a point where she had to wake up and do the very hard work of leaving something that had been such a high and had had the answers and had given her life so much meaning. When I asked Robbie to put together some information that I could record for her introduction, she wrote it in first person, and I want to be able to read it in her words. So this is what Robbie wrote. I was raised in a very reformed, non-religious household in middle America in the 1950s and 60s. From the earliest times that I can remember, I searched for understanding life and a place where people would just be kind to each other. My parents believed that a good education and excellent grooming skills were enough to launch me into the world. It was hoped that I would marry well and raise successful, healthy children. World War II had added to their fears of being, quote-unquote, too Jewish. So even Jewish philosophy wasn't instilled in me. So, I was looking for truth with a capital T and passed quickly through psychedelics and the hippie movement as mind opening doors. And when the Kennedys and Martin Luther King were murdered in front of the world, I became totally disillusioned with the suburban capitalistic dreams that my parents would have me follow. The Vietnam War was affecting my entire generation. I packed up a large backpack and began to travel as did so many other middle-class dropouts. First I landed in Europe, then Asia and the Middle East, and eventually the jungles of the Yucatan Peninsula. I traveled for about 10 years, looking for knowledge about God and the quote-unquote rules. I was so young when I started out, but I knew I needed answers to questions that I barely could formulate. Looking back on those years, I understand that I was the perfect candidate for assimilation into a cult. I hope what I have learned and experienced might help you or your loved one. Here's Robbie now. I am very excited to have someone I feel like I'm really meeting for the first time today, even though we met briefly in the past, but we were both wearing masks (laughs) and, uh, you know, when you don't see a person's whole face, sometimes you feel like you haven't fully met them. So I'm very excited to have Robbie Balinick on the show today who I met in a very kind of happenstance way, which happens at times. um, where we, uh, where I was talking about some of the work that I was doing, and uh, and you basically said, huh? <laughs> and we started a conversation because you've had uh, extensive experience with something that I think would be great to talk about. And before you introduce yourself, I think to also mention that sometimes there can be a worry about talking about certain experiences. And, and really, if it's been your own experience, if you're talking from your own life, then uh, it's not considered slanderous. You're just saying, this is what happened. This is what I witnessed. This is what happened to me. This is what I know. And so I think that it's a very important story, too, because it takes us into the past a bit, but also that still the group that we're going to be talking about still has a presence. And it's important for people to know that as well. OK, so take it away, Robbie. Introduce yourself.
2: My name is Robbie Balinick. I was in a cult for many years many years and did a lot of work for the guru and was a representative bringing people into the cult as well. And um, took me many, many years to deprogram myself. And in those days, there was not a lot of help. I had to do a lot of reading. And the cult was like elastic. I was being pulled back all the time. It's hard to break free. I was in my 20s and 30s, and now I'm in my 70s. So I could talk about this as a long time ago, but I have a lot of clarity on it because it was so long ago. I thought a lot
0: about it. Right. I'm sure you have. So if you can just fill in the blank. So what was the name of the group and the name of the leader?
2: The name of the group was MSIA, which could also be pronounced Messiah. M stood for Movement of Inner Spiritual Awareness, MSIA. I liked that name. That name was a hook for me, too. I thought how clever that was, because the movement of spiritual inner awareness is inside of all of us. So it's the Messiah. Even the name hooked me. The guru's name was John Hinkins, but during an operation, he left his body and returned with a consciousness, he said, that was called Roger, and he became John hyphenated Roger, John Roger. He had been a a school teacher in Orange County, I can't remember where, and um, now he was this guru of sorts with this elevated consciousness.
0: I'm wondering, first of all, what you were looking for at the time. I mean, there are times that people will say they were looking for something, other times it's that they weren't actually looking, but they happened upon a particular group that really spoke to them suddenly.
2: Woodstock really turned my head. I mean, I really, the coming together of people in love and peace really moved me. I was a part of the hippie movement before it went to drugs, when it was really about love and peace and loving each other. When the Kennedys were killed and Martin Luther King, I really had a terrible feeling inside. I'd been really led down by all the the American dreams, you know, being American, be... Be a capitalist, get married, join the country club. All of that wasn't good for me anymore. And I um, took a backpack and started traveling the world. I traveled the world with that one backpack for almost a decade. I really believed I was young and naive and very optimistic. I really believed that I could find um, a place where people loved each other and were kind to each other and all served a common purpose. I looked, God knows, I looked. Many years later, at the end of that journey, which I could talk about, of course, but at the end of that journey, um, a cousin called me. He knew I was just up from a psychic healing center where I was trying to find God in Mexico, and he said, Robbie, I heard a man speak in Orange County. You'll like him. I'm not going to tell you anything. Come and hear him speak, and he invited me to this meeting. That's when I first heard John Rogers. I was a vulnerable seeker of truth and love. I really wanted to find something. I think I was vulnerable because I was raised by Jewish parents who were hiding being Jewish. It was after World War II. They were uh, afraid of being Jews in public. Our community, while we're not religious at all, I'm an ethnic Jew, I hadn't really been raised with anything spiritual. I had no inner philosophy of what life was about. My parents had neither. Um, Being safe financially and looking good was really their goal, being healthy. We had a kind, loving family, but no spiritual philosophy at all. Nor did my grandparents, American born mostly. And um, I think I was really set up for anyone that would tell me truths because there are universal truths in my opinion. And hearing them first from this guru addressing me in a way I'd never been addressed before made me totally vulnerable to his his whole movement. And, yeah, and searching, that was a period of searching after the president was shot and after Martin Luther King was killed and after the hippie movement went to drugs. It was a time when people were searching. Um, rock and roll had started off being something for all of us songs about love and peace, and Bob Dylan singing the truth, and Joan Baez singing, but it had fallen apart to drugs, and I really, I I was left with not knowing much about what I should do or who I was, and um, that's the time I met him, 22, I think I was.
0: Okay, so, wow, you had been hoping to be able, and working to be able to find something that really spoke to you, that answered questions, that answered big questions.
2: Yes, that even asked the questions.
0: Ah. And
2: you didn't have to answer them. I had never heard the questions asked out loud before. And that was, that in itself was a big deal. And I was starting to read philosophy and starting to read the old um, theosophical books. And I was looking for... Looking for questions that might have answers, and he he spoke right to my soul, because I believe when the soul hears the truth, it stirs. And I stirred. I mean, when he spoke the truth, because there are universal truths, and he was very well read and very, very good at, at speaking. a psychologist, a teacher, and a very well-read person in all of the philosophical arts. And when he spoke to my soul, Jordan, I had a, I had a transcendental experience the first time he spoke, but looking back in retrospect, it was me creating that experience myself. He was the vehicle that let, allowed me to be free enough to, to explore the places he was talking about that created the experience. It wasn't him. But I definitely had an experience that made me feel that this was real,
0: I love that you said that, that you gave this delineation because I think it's a really important one that I think people also do create these moments, these moments of awe, uh, where you feel that you're having a transcendent moment and kind of ethereal, ephemeral, out of body.
2: I mean, I watched the seminar from out of my body looking down. And I know that sounds California very hokey, but it's true. That's really what happened to me. In retrospect, I can do that to myself. If I sit calm enough and do some meditation exercises, I can put my body to sleep and relax my being enough that that can happen again. And that, But I put that all on him. He did that for me because he called himself the mystical traveler consciousness. Comes every 100,000 years. And he's the only way to lead you through all the, Outer realms of consciousness into the place you want to end up when your soul leaves the body.
0: I'm wondering when you first heard him speak. What was, I mean, besides the fact that he he was well read, whatever. What was your initial impression of him?
2: Hard to um, get an initial impression because that kind of seems like you're asking me physically what was he. And I, I this experience was well beyond physical. I have to say. It was what we had. He was just a guy, a very white man, very ordinary looking. Nothing about him would have made me gravitate to him in any way. But his words were right directed right into that heart of me that had been untouched. I mean, I was a virgin as far as my soul being touched. No one had ever touched me in that way. Nothing. And now things do. You know, I learned to open that place. Through this experience, you know, through my life's experience, I had never been touched in that way by anyone or anything before. Maybe in reading novels. I like novels, never in, never in life in a room full of people that were experiencing the same thing as me. That camaraderie was what I'd been looking for all the years I'd been on the road. And that camaraderie is very important in being welcomed into a cult a family of people and that is something that we all crave in some part of us you know
0: it's very good it's very important and i think you know there is something that adds to kind of the fervor of the moment when you when you have it all around you and you feel connected and and it's very exciting to m- meet people who are on a similar path or who are turned on by the same sorts of things and who are thinking about the things that you're thinking about and exploring and searching So traveling on your own. I mean, there's some isolation about that. And, and, you know, even though you're going to meet people along the way, but suddenly being in a room with lots of people, I'm sure it's very moving.
2: There was a language too. Not only is there a, a feeling of oneness that we all share, we all have the same language. It's almost like a code, like, um, let the light surround us. I mean, was something we'd all say, but it meant a lot. It meant, it meant, I mean, there were bigger meanings to the little words we'd say. It was really joining a whole subculture that the rest of the world weren't lucky enough to be part
0: of. I'm quoting a, a colleague, uh, Patrick Ryan, who talks about being in a cultic group is like being in a prison of specialness. I'm curious what you know or what you now know about him. And
2: people that were much more talented than me, that wrote books and were singers and movie stars and writers and um, people that led seminars, psychologists. I mean, so many people. And they always talked about his works to people they knew. And before you knew it, his, his groups had gotten bigger and bigger and they were all over the world. He had thousands of people, started doing workshops, and anything his devotees, we called ourselves devotees or initiates, any of the initiates that he had that did good works, because I could name names of people that did good works, he would say it was me working through you. His, through his good graces, they were being able to channel what they needed to get the word out to people. So everyone felt they were doing his works. I myself started a newspaper and traveled all over the United States, interviewing people that were psychics, gurus, healers, asking them questions, and then coming back and putting it in the newspaper, turning it into articles. Um, and his name, this newspaper he had his name on it and his insignia on it all, all over the, the country. But it gave me the courage because I was so special that I could go where he wanted to go to meet the people he wanted to meet, to interview them, to spread the word. Because the word, this inner word was his message. He was trying to help people get the soul realm when they died. That was his message.
0: Now, I remember hearing about MSIA, Messiah, but only after hearing about Insight seminars.
2: Oh, Insight came decades later. Um, He had a group of, um, what's the word, life coaches and um, therapists that worked with him, and they helped him put together these insight trainings. Um, Russell Bishop, Jack Canfield, there were lots of people whose names you might know, but they put together these workshops. At first, John Roger just had his own workshops, and he would charge us money to go, like um, he would balance our aura. And it would cost He put his hands in our aura. And then he had three young staff members that lived with him, beautiful young men that that lived with him. And he said that they could work through him. He would work through them and they could do these services. But then he didn't make enough money fast enough. So then they put together these workshops to help people open their spiritual heart. I think they even called the first workshops long before Insight the Opening Heart Workshop. It was a time when workshops were very popular. Um, Werner Earhart was doing it. Um, He always was looking for a way to monetize. There was one, there was one initiate, his name was um, Williams, he was a writer. He wrote a book, he says, 101 ways how your guru can hurt you after you talk about him. When I finally left, everyone turned their back on me, no more friends. John Rogers said that we had what he, Red monk energy. It was from another time and place. There had been a red monk that had tried to hurt the mystical traveler energy before. And this red monk was back again making rumors about him and it was all crazy. By then, I wasn't listening anymore. By then, I said to my friends, Do I look like a red monk? Am I a red monk? What do you mean you can't talk to me? But they couldn't when I left. They were afraid the red monk was working through me. I was always a tough cookie. It wouldn't have kept me in line. I was ready to leave when I was ready to leave. That was secondary to what I was giving up, the, the feeling of being special. And the people, one thing, but giving up the feeling that you know something everyone else doesn't know because you're, you're special. That's the really the thing that keeps you in line.
0: There's an addictive quality to that. And I think people don't realize how it, it triggers the same centers in the brain. It's a dopamine brush, really, that people have to kind of detox from that. And it's painful and it's really hard. It's
2: brainwashing. In fact, I got to a point that I knew the words and the thoughts, I could see the veil drop so that I couldn't break free. I could see the drop over my thoughts. There were certain words that we used, And if I, if I would hear them, all of a sudden I would be in a place that nothing could get in that was real. Only the cult ideas were in there.
0: You know, you, you're mentioning something that we have, you know, as you know, a lot of terms for like the thought stopping cliches and, you know, the things that really, and you can, and I can see it. I'm sure you, you can remember it, uh, that. Sometimes when I'm talking to someone whose family, let's say, wants me to talk to them, they go in and out of being present and I can see it in their eyes. And I will sometimes kind of lean in like I I need to kind of bring them back into the room with me. And uh, sometimes it is just because they're reciting something in their head or it's a word that I use. What were some of those words or some of those phrases that you remember that brought that veil down?
2: when you're really brainwashed is the veil has been brought down so much that it's not even words anymore. It's just remembering. It, yeah, because I can't really say it got it got thick enough that it wasn't even a word. It was it was just remembering remembering that there was that and remembering that would drop the the veil again, you know? Mm-hmm. And um it's hard. It it's real hard. I want I want to add this and I say it to remind myself as well, I would have walked off a cliff and killed myself if I felt that was going to get me closer to the mystical traveler consciousness, without a doubt. I don't think I would have hesitated.
0: You know, going from that story of seeing your feet going off the edge of a cliff that you would have done willingly and to the point where you leave it, a lot needed to have happened, a lot needed to have changed that you started feeling, maybe that you started seeing, that you started doubting? What started to go wrong?
2: It took a long time until it was really over. But it started when all of a sudden, out of the blue, three of the staff members that had lived with him for more than a decade that I knew of, young men that had grown up in his house, started talking about that he was sexually active with them and forcing them telling them it was for their spiritual evolution that they had to have sex with the traveler and all of these bad things he was doing. And uh, a lot of people in the organization didn't know the staff members as closely as I did. But when I heard Edgar and Victor, Michael, when I heard them say, me, no, oh, it's true, it happened. I knew it was true then. And that kind of made me shake my head when the walls would go down, something kept a little crack of light at the bottom there because I knew these guys and I knew they didn't lie. It wasn't like all the other initiates that weren't as close to them, that hear the stories and say it was red mug energy, don't listen, it's not true. I was there. you know. I worked on the newspaper in the office with all these people. One person that had been with him all the years, she was a student of his from high school before he even had the consciousness. I think she was in love with him forever, but he used her. Uh, Paulie McGarry, she was um, his original staff member. She originally wrote off his discourses and his books. She said she wrote them from his tapes, that he from the discourses he gave, but The truth is i would sit and watch her after a while she knew what he would say and she would sit and write him just like i would sit and edit them you know oh yes we were channeling him we were writing it we were using his his my arm but his energy right but i think he had misused her in a lot of ways too even though i don't know she never spoke up to me but the teachings i wanted them i wanted to be one of those people so badly I couldn't let it go, you know, I couldn't. And I would stay away for six months, a year, but then something would draw me back to his seminars again, you know. It took me a long time to deprogram. I read everything I could find on cults, which was very few, like I told you before.
0: Okay. Wow. From these men who were really devoted And so you had no reason to think that they were making it up because it seemed that it was devastating and shocking to them, and they didn't want it to be true, but it was. They traveled
2: all over the world to the Mexico. He has Guatemalan followers. Big following in England. He they were they traveled all over the world with him, spreading his word. No, they they would not make it up. They one of them told the other one, and they finally. They saw through it, and when they started sharing it just with a close intimate group, I happened to be part of it, and I heard it firsthand. I knew it was true.
0: And then what happened after that? Because that, of course, is going to start this domino effect, right? Uh, but what happened next?
2: Don't forget, I'm working for the newspaper, which we started. It was our paper, but we gave it to him. We called it his, and because we worked on the paper, I didn't have enough money to pay the rent to the ashram. We weren't free at the ashram. So what did J what did JR, we called him JR. What did JR tell me to do? He gave me a private meeting and talked to me. Private meeting, big deal, you understand. He he told me I should get a waitress job at night. No, I'm a I'm a suburban girl with a manicure and I had college degrees. I just want you to know I never thought of waitressing, especially at night, you know? When Jr. told me it was okay to do it, I figured that it was okay to do it. And I started working, um, waitressing at night and working on the paper. When I I started deprogramming and mentioning to people, you know, maybe he, um, maybe, you know, Wesley told me, I would say, you know, he told me himself like that. Then they started going through my desk looking to see if I was stealing evidence or things because I was privy to a lot of paperwork and things. I don't know if there was anything that would have cast aspersions on him in the paperwork I was that I was privy to, but, but they must've thought there was because now they were tearing my desk apart at the ashram. Going and telling me I had to leave. And all I did was mention that I had heard this and that, and that was it, I was out. Then he started being Then I started to see he was a sociopath, you know, that he was, he was crazed at that
0: point. What did you start noticing?
2: Well, he would, he was so paranoid of things that people might say or do about him that it didn't, wasn't like a guru at all, you know. I mean, he was like a little girl in grammar school, afraid the girls were going to gossip about him you know, that's how he appeared. Anybody that said anything bad about him would have their mailbox broken into. If they didn't live in the ashram, their tires would be slashed, you know, I mean, all of these strange things. And they were happening to people I knew, people that I knew. So I couldn't turn from it. That's really what helped me move along. It really, it didn't really change the process too much, but it helped me move along. A lot of us sharing what was going on in some of the crazy behavior, Jay, I was carrying on to people, sneaking around their houses and going through things. I mean, crazy stuff like you would read about in, in you know, in a spy novel. But he was doing it or sending somebody. And then I said, what the heck? This can't be what I signed up to. This, this isn't the same. Something split. It wasn't the same anymore. Something was different. He did it himself by getting angry at me the things I hadn't done in case I might do them. So his paranoia over what I don't know he thought I could do to him, that paranoia and making people go through my things and tell people not to talk to you anymore, he helped me
0: deprogram. I mean, I really like your point about the behavior that you were starting to notice and the things that were being done to you were helping to kind of unlock you. And uh, and you were seeing, you know, who this person is it's really devastating and it really you know you can go through some mourning and I think at first sometimes not even believe or wanting to believe it so what was your process of really making a break and what helped you move past it after you left my whole life
2: had been one of spiritual quest my whole quest all the answers I had found were connected to him so I had to throw it away I had to throw away everything. I went to a dark place in my soul because I, I wasn't a spiritual person anymore. Remember, I wasn't a, I, even in the 60s when I did drugs, I wasn't a big drug user. I mean, I had smoked marijuana and some hashish, but I wasn't a big drug user. But I started dating attorneys, and they all put, they put cocaine under my nose at those parties. Nice suburban attorneys, but they were into cocaine in the 70s, a lot of them. I don't want to generalize, but and I, one of the things John Roger had told us not to do drugs, they make your aura sticky and negativity sticks to you. And I, okay, well, I don't really like the the fact that he, told but that made sense. I never was much of a drug user, but I said, I'm going to use cocaine with these guys. That's what I said. Anything I could do to break the crystallizations. And I did some cocaine with them, but I didn't like that either. wasn't my style, but I really became a searcher again. I didn't know what I was searching for now because I wasn't searching for spirit anymore. I was too disappointed. I was really at a loss. I I really had a dark time, I have to say. thought maybe I would find a boyfriend and the love would fill me up again, but that was never going to be my thing either, so it was very hard. I think reading was my solace. I read a lot, anything I could find on cults, anything I could find on people that had moved through a journey where they had to reinvent themselves. I just read and read and read. And I think that, that helped me.
0: Wow. You know, and when, when we were just schmoozing before the, we started recording and you were talking about how, it, it used to be hard to talk about and now it's easier. Is it the, the passage of time that has made it easier? Is it more realizations that has made it easier?
2: The realizations became stronger than the veil. Yeah, because the veil was very heavy. You know, it was very heavy. And um, I just I just so much past it and develop my own self. I'm tough but uh, all of my adult friends pretty much have either died or they, um, are, they're still there, most of them. I find a couple on Facebook now that I was in the cult with or that I lived in the ashram with, and I'll go through and I'll scroll through and see who their friends are. If the friends are still all cult people or their things are like love and light and see you at the next seminar or something, I don't friend them. But I have friended a few people that, um, that have moved out from it and that's been nice. It's not that many, I have to tell you, it's not that many. People don't move on. It's a good place to be in. To feel that you are special, that you have that that you're being guided and that you're loved for who you really are by this higher force is just so soothing. Secrets secrets there's so many secrets that every regular people don't know that gives you power having secrets
0: and so what according to the group what were the secrets
2: oh, well the, the secret of evolution the secret of um the secret of how to chant he would give us tones if you chanted a certain amount of time and built the right energy and became a, a pure enough initiate he alone could decide when you were ready to graduate to the next tone which was how you got your your The accolades from other people. How many initiations you had? The highest initiation he could give was a soul initiation. He would hold that back. He wouldn't give it. Well, I always think now he didn't give it because he said once you got there, you were going to have this enlightened consciousness. Well, how are we going to do
0: that? You know. I, you know, it's. I find it so interesting, and I hear about this a lot. You know that uh, in groups like this, the the leader is. The barometer the leader is the one who decides if you're ready if you're self-actualized if you are um a- at a certain kind of consciousness level all these things that are uh, you know unmeasurable intangible and it and i think it just breeds this dependency on this other person to just somehow see something in you or not and to decide when you're not ready
2: i'm going tell you something I've never said this publicly before, but I, when I got to a point, I had left. But some of my friends were saying, "You left. You left before you got your soul initiation." I said, "No, I got it. <laughs> you know, I got it." I said, "Don't well, get it to me." And um, then, what could they say? Could they? Could they still call me Red Monk? You know. Because well, I was at a point I didn't care. I just said, I have it. I had had all the other initiations, and I knew damn well whatever you had to do, I had done it, you know. So I said, I, I have it. Listen, I was like elastic to that group for 15 years. Long after I left it, I would go back and start to try to see if I could find peace again there when I was in that dark side and didn't know what to do with myself. you often went back there good news is I didn't fall back into it. I just wasn't able to, you know, I would write J.R. a letter every once in a while. I would show up at a seminar waiting to see if he'd say to me something like, oh, I'm so glad you're back. You finally made it back, you know, but he died. And when he died, one of the young men he lived with decided that John Roger passed the mantle, they called it to him. And he was now the mystical traveling consciousness. I don't like to say, I don't know what this guy thinks, but all his whole life trying to emulate the, the mystical traveler. Now he thinks he's it. He must know nothing's changed.
0: Hmm. Right. Who is that? What's his name?
2: He's the mystical traveler now, John Morton.
0: Morton, okay.
2: John Morton oh. married Lee Taylor Young. Oh. Lee Taylor Young was famous for Um, she was a movie star.
0: Huh. I so I know just as we we finish up I, I there are two things that I wanted to to do before we finished besides thank you for this um one is to let people know that even though John Roger is not around anymore he what is it he passed the mantle onto someone else um uh he did he was the founder of a university that is around Um, University of Santa Monica, right? It's unaccredited.
2: Mary came to seminars. They started it. They wanted to make a university. They they were PhDs and wanted to make a university. He helped them make the university, helped them get it together. With his energy, they feel they channeled him. And so it was his university. But really, Ron and Mary made that university. Ron and Mary started it with John Rogers. But it's all tied into the spiritual mishigas of Nothing.
0: I <laughs> like that. I'm going to write that down the spiritual mishigas of Nothing. Uh, that is a T shirt right there. So, no, I, as far as I know, also, still insight seminars exist. And I think it's just right down the street from the University of Santa Monica.
2: What that building when I was still part of the cult, uh, the 2200 building on Wilshire, there's chiropractic um, offices there they give up, they tithe half of their salary. I mean, I have friends there still. But Mary started the university with JR. It was really through their good works because they wanted to do that. But um, it, it, I mean, I don't know if you get any training. People that tell me they have that degree, I roll my eyes. All well, the money they pay to go to that university. I mean, what the heck is it?
0: Uh, Yeah. It's all about spiritual psychology, and, but it's unaccredited. So I don't know what you do with a degree or a license from there.
2: You have to get referrals into the community from the community. You're still bound to them.
0: Wow. That's really fascinating. So because you, you're, you've done so much reading and you're an expert also because of your experience, what wisdom can you impart on the people listening just about kind of what to watch out for. You know, I know that people are not going to be open to, to seeing what they see later on, but what's important to look for.
2: I want to say that don't be afraid to be on your own path. Anyone that tries to take you off of your path and to have you do it their way, in their path, with their score and sheet, that's definitely a no-no. And any real teacher has a sense of humor and laughs all the time. Your path is written inside of you. We're all individuals. We all have our own path. And if anybody says they can tell you what's written inside your heart, of what you should do, that's a sign. You stay away from that because you have to learn to read your own spiritual truths and hear your own voices. And anyone that's speaking through you and you're listening to their voice instead of yours, you're sidestepping.
0: Thank you so much for the serendipitous connecting a couple weeks ago and then being able to be on this and share your history and how your life is now, which is so different. And it just seems that you're in this kind of settled place, you know, which is an interesting thing.
2: And I want to say this, if I said anything to offend anybody in any way, I'm sorry. And if um, anyone from MSIA should be listening and you think I said something wrong, please feel free to find me on Facebook
0: and to correct me. Very nice to talk to you. And uh, I hope we run into each other again. One more thing before you go. Robbie had such a journey. And her journey continues. Her life is good now. And she was able to disengage from something that had held so much promise, or had been, or at least seemed to be, the place that held all the answers. The fact that she had this very good, sincere, and pure intention and wish. For truth, as she said with a capital T, I truly respect. And what keeps me doing this work, among other things, is that it is people with an open mind and an open heart and a true pursuit of wanting their world and the world around them for everyone to be a better place and to be able to get the answers. That it can be taken advantage of. And the fact that anyone would take advantage of that is unconscionable to me. I wanna be able to highlight some of the things that she talked about. One of the things that she mentioned that I have to say I love, it's a great phrase. She talked about the spiritual mishugas of nothing. For anyone who doesn't know what mishugas is, it's a Yiddish word for craziness. So, the spiritual craziness of nothing. So many people can talk about their experiences in cults as just that. Even though it seemed to promise everything. But she also talked about how when she was involved and when she was in it, when she talked about and made me have this kind of uh, visceral reaction when she said it. And I got goosebumps when she said that she would have walked off the edge of a cliff if he had told her to. That she could see the veil drop over her thoughts. This programming, the kind of limerence, that hypnotic love that you feel, that sense that this is it. It can make people blind. And it can make their vision, if they have any still left about their world that's from their time before the group, very skewed. And then their perspective is off, totally off. And that veil is extremely hard to lift. Many people have talked to me about it it feeling like a blanket that's been placed over them, over their mind, over their bodies. And just trying to lift it off, it feels like it's too weighty, too heavy to do so. There's also a fear of lifting off this veil or this thing that has encompassed you. Because once you do, what are you left with? You're not only left with being back in a world that you've been made to feel happy to have left, or lucky to have left, and here you are again, or you're made to feel unmoored, not connected anymore to something that gave you so much meaning, or something that gave you the path to follow, or the formula to follow. And so a lot of people know that there is a veil that came down over them, but their fear keeps them from wanting to lift it off because they're equally afraid of what they're going to see once it's off. A lot of people, when they get involved in these kinds of situations, can feel stuck, suicidal. They are not sure where they belong. They're not sure if just staying where they are is the better decision because leaving feels so fraught with anxiety. And I give Robbie a lot of credit for doing something that's very hard for people to do, which is that she said towards the end, that what helped her leave was that the realizations became stronger than the veil. So the realizations, what was real, what was really happening, who John Roger really was, what this group really was, And also what it wasn't, because when we see what's real, we also see what isn't. And that's sometimes harder to look at. But the fact that that became stronger than the veil is something that happens not only in cults, but it can happen in new relationships, too. We've all had experiences where we have a new friend or have a new boyfriend, girlfriend, whomever. And we might notice that some people are not as enthusiastic about them as we are. And we might not want to notice that at first. And we might think they're being unfairly judged until a couple months down the line, we start to get it. But we couldn't see it because there were chemicals released in our system that made us blind, that were our veil, a veil that was impossible to see through. And so, when the realizations become stronger than the veil, it's because usually there are so many of them over time that we can't ignore them anymore. Or they are so bothersome. What's happening is so wrong. And also, usually there is a tipping point. There's either an amount of realizations that we're dealing with that have become too heavy for us to ignore, too great for us to ignore. Or there's something that happens that has pushed us over the edge because it was so beyond what we thought could be possible there in such a negative way. Or it was such a betrayal. Or it was so much against the ideals, or at least what we thought were the ideals of that leader and the group, that it affected our whole sense of if we should be there or not anymore. And so to be at the edge of a cliff, to be ready to step off, means that then once the realizations become stronger than the veil, you have to be ready to step off, but in the other direction. You have to be ready to step off the cliff back into the world. And that's hard too. But it's a much better place to be because you're not entangled in a web anymore. You get to make decisions that are your own. You get to connect with people who are safer to be around and pick and choose. And you also get to act on your instincts. That the realizations that I think people have in cults from early on that they can't act on, well, in the world outside, you get to. And that is one of the freedoms that I care a lot about. For people to be able to act in their life with a certain sense of agency, That something bothers them and they get to say something about it. Something bothers them and they get to do something about it. Something bothers them and they get to change direction in their life because of it. And that's the way we get to be good stewards of our lives and of our minds. And that's something that's taken away in a cultic system. I'm so happy for Robbie that she found her way back. And I love that she had those original pursuits that I know she still has, because that's part of her character. You can feel it when you talk to her, that she wants to know that the world is going to be a good place, and she wants to be a part of making it a good place. And I think that's part of the reason why she's telling her story. Talk to you next week.
1: Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com indoctrination Be sure to give us a follow on our social media Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at indoctrinationpodcast and for Twitter find us at, at underscore indoctrination We love hearing from you too So send us an email at indoctrinationshow@gmail.com. at gmail.com And for more updates on the show visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.